0: Hello, I'm Michael Barr.
1: And I'm Scott Soschnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players
0: in the industry. On this week's show, we talk with Milwaukee Bucks president Peter Fagan about the business of the NBA and the Bucks making a comeback. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And the first story is a story that, Scott, you broke. And it's a very serious story. It involves NFL TV and ESPN. They have suspended five ex-players over harassment claims.
1: Yeah, every day it seems we're waiting for who's the next person. We've now hit the sports world and it's no surprise it's sports media. You just wonder when the culture shift is going to happen where this stuff no longer happens. This was some ugly stuff that's alleged. This woman who was a wardrobe stylist at the NFL. She said her office was the men's room. I mean, that's problem number one, right? If true, that that she was made to work in the men's room, people sending her pictures, inappropriate uh, nudity, uh, foul language, suggestive language, treatment at the office, uh, and bigger for the NFL, this could be a significant business issue. Almost half of the league's fans are women. And this is not exactly something you want to do to your customers. You want to make them feel as if you certainly care about them.
2: This is certainly obviously not a one-off thing. And we saw another former NFL Network employee post on her Instagram account uh, that she was when she was hired, asked by the hiring coordinator, uh, do you plan to get knocked up like the rest of them, I think is the exact quote. Um, so it looks it looks bad, as you said, Scott, uh, for, for NFL and NFL Network. Uh, but as we've said before on this show, uh, this is not a problem that is unique to any one industry. It's not just entertainment. It's obviously not just sports. It's obviously not just former NFL players. And I do wonder when more of this is going to continue to come out. It
1: has gotten the attention of Roger Goodell who said, we take this seriously, wouldn't surprise me, Michael, let's say, if there was more to this story. This is broader than just sports, obviously, but there's certainly a seismic shift
0: in the thinking. Let's talk about Derek Jeter, who now is an owner, part owner anyway, of the Miami Marlins, and a super agent, Scott Boris, is kind of slamming him over some of the recent movements that have happened with the team.
2: It's funny, yeah, a couple months into the Derek Jeter ownership era, it looks a lot like the Jeffrey Loria ownership area. Uh, (laughs) He's doing a lot of the same things. He's fire-sailing top talent, which is what Jeffrey Loria did for so long. Um, And there's obviously a, a reason for it. The Marlins are not making a ton of money. They have prospects that might not, or they have talent that might not help them immediately. So why not try to break the whole thing down and build it up organically? which has worked. I mean, we've seen the Washington Nationals turn two bad years into Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper, and now they're one of the best teams in the National League. This is obviously a strategy. It has worked before. But if you're a Marlins fan, I'm sure you can't help but notice that, hey, our new ownership looks a lot like the old one.
0: But one thing that Giancarlo Stanton, who is now a New York Yankee, said, he said, look, we're not that far off, he said this to Derek Jeter, from having a a super-duper team that's very competitive. We just need some pitching but apparently, uh, the Marlins didn't see it that way. I love that. We just need
1: some pitching. This is always the the divide between the players and the owners when they yeah. sit at the negotiating table. You have to pay for pitching, and this team is losing a lot of money each year. These owners just paid, many sports bankers say, overpaid for the team $1.2 billion. You only can do one of two things. Increase revenue or cut expenses. They're trying to do both. And to really sum it up, I had somebody email me the other day and said, who would have thought when it was all said and done, Alex Rodriguez was going to wind up being more popular than Derek Jeter. (laughs) So that says something.
0: Another topic. Louisville has fired back against the ex-coach, Rick Pitino, over the NCAA bribery scandal. Gentlemen?
2: This is pretty unprecedented. I mean, I I can't think of another time that a university has gone after a coach personally uh, for... Something that happened under his watch from an NCAA perspective, uh, but it really underscores kind of how ugly everything has gone for Rick Pitino for Louisville. I mean, Rick Pitino has filed suit against Adidas for ruining his reputation. Uh, Adidas had fired him right before that suit. After Louisville fired him, he filed suit against Louisville also for wrongful termination. Uh, it's a pretty ugly situation.
1: This is beyond the dean's office. This is the FBI investigating college sports. Who can be surprised that it is? unprecedented ugliness when we've reached that nadir of all this
0: oh my our thanks to bloomberg business of sports reporter Eben novi williams now we turn to our interview with milwaukee bucks president peter fagan
1: in his past as a marketing director at madison square garden peter fagan certainly knows about selling in a big market this is totally different. He is now in small market Milwaukee. He began with the franchise as an advisor to Mark Lazary and Wes Edens when they were trying to purchase the team, so he certainly knows all the financials. Peter Fagan, thanks very much for joining us. And I'd like to start with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Of course, he began his NBA career with the Bucks in Milwaukee. And recently, he had a message about the NBA. He says... That this league is poised to become the dominant global league, surpassing the NFL in revenue, being number one. Is he correct?
3: Not a question in the world i mean i think I think you can look at stats of participation. I think you can look just at the media and the broadcast stats. I mean NBA is now broadcast in a little bit over two hundred and fifteen countries. I think if you look at the digital um, engagement around the world um, it, it literally dwarfs that of any other league, and these leagues are you know major league baseball, the NFL and hockey are, are primarily domestic, you know, products and they're consumed domestically. The NBA has hockey stick growth, you know, on an international basis and specifically in Asia and China where it is just exploding um, to go. So I, I Obviously agree with him. Like we are in a great time to to really leverage the strength of the NBA.
1: Now this of course doesn't happen overnight. This was David Stern's grand plan in the making. Is the major advantage that you have participants that the best players in your league come throughout the world. Therefore they have a natural homegrown fan base.
3: Yeah, I think when you have over 120 international players that that are coming, you, you naturally have an embedded fan base, you know, that that hits all these different countries and uh, all these interest groups. So right at that very moment, you know, you don't have to manufacture fandom, um, you know, in countries. They have their guys to watch and to follow, and it, it's just exploded.
0: Speaking of players overseas, my goodness, Giannis Antetokounmpo, holy smokes, this guy is a huge find for Milwaukee.
1: Michael, can you say that again so that I know how to say it? I, 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 I stick with Michael, Greek Freak. Michael, you are
3: aces on pronunciation. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to say it again. I think you are top 5% of pronunciation. No, Peter,
1: I need him to say it so that I know how to say it. I need to do this phonetically because I can't. I just go Greek Freak. It's right,
0: Giannis Goodgrief Antetokampo.
1: Antetokampo. Okay, I got it. All right. uh, what guy, was your question?
0: Yeah, well, he's the
3: face so. of
0: the franchise and right
3: He's becoming one of the faces of the league. I mean, this is you know we call it we call it publicly and we call it case study wise like the honest effect. So we you know Mark, Wes, and Jamie bought this team. You know, a little bit over three and a half years ago and uh, we kind of didn't have that player, didn't have that effect. We went to market and said, hey, we are going to go local, then we're going to go regional, then we're going to go national, then we're going to go international, much like you would attack like marketplaces to just build that base. And lo and behold, the honest effect has turned that completely upside down. I mean, he's one of the he, in a very short time, I mean, last year he became an all-star kind of out of nowhere. In a very short time he has changed that funnel to really be international, national, regional, local, um, and what that has done for our awareness, what that has done for our brand, what that's done for apparel sales—you name it—the honest effect is is reality.
1: We are chatting with Peter Fagan, the president of the Milwaukee Bucks. Peter, Milwaukee Bucks—five years ago, four years ago—I'm—I'm I'm struggling to even think they—they they weren't great. They might have even been a little on the irrelevant side, which is the worst thing to be in sports. Using a financial term, though, they were a distressed asset, no?
3: Yeah, I think that's what we call it. I mean, we, you know, with, with a distressed asset, with the real turnaround ability, with an unbelievable core, a heritage of unbelievable great play, one of the few teams with a championship, with a few teams back, back in the day with Central Division championships, a heritage of unbelievable players, a sports-crazy state, a sports-crazy town that maybe got a little apathetic, you know, for for the last decade. And I think when uh, Mark and Jamie and Wes saw this, it, it was kind of obvious that an NBA brand is, is just – such an unbelievable catalyst for anything, you know, for growth, for brand, for participation in a in a major city. They just knew what the upside was in the ability to kind of reposition it and kind of build it from the studs back up to to a growth business, and that's kind of what we focused on.
1: But you can't plan for a Greek freak. You don't know if you're going to get that. So what did you see? What was the plan for building that, as you said, local, regional, uh, national, international?
3: Well, I think you got to start with with really what the objectives are, right? So we went out very publicly and said, by the way, um, with this ownership, our goal is to win an NBA championship. And, and you know, that, that means a lot of things, but I think in the public it means we're going to invest in players, we're going to build a culture, we're going to really back it up on the court. Can, can I interrupt you to, for
1: one second, though? Because yep. everybody wants to win. All the owners say the same thing, but the one thing you can never guarantee the fan base is that you're going to win. What you can guarantee is atmosphere, entertainment, good time. Was that the focus?
3: Well, no. The the focus, we had on-court focus, and then we had the experiential and the brand focus. So, you know, we also had this great advantage, in we had this rebirth opportunity that very few sports franchises in the world get to have, and part of that was the ability to really reimagine a district and build an arena like in in conjunction with the rebirth so we were going to upgrade and be best of class in every touch point to a fan whether that means the broadcast the experiential in the arena and then really kind of the aspiration of in very short term we will be playing in the best arena in the world with one of the most competitive teams with the hope to win an nba championship i mean we try to keep it very simple
0: Speaking of the arena, and it's very clever how you guys are marketing this. It's going to open in the fall of 2018, if I understand correctly. And you're marketing it for people in the northern suburbs of Chicago because it's the easier route to get there than it is for people in Chicago to get to their arena.
3: Yeah, I think for us, I mean, you think of just population bases. You know, for us, southeastern Wisconsin, northern Illinois are just great great uh, population basis where, you know, there's an opportunity for us to bring them here for entertainment and sports without a question. And part of what we're going to do is really create that magnet that hasn't been here before. So how do we have the best of the best concerts? How do we have a very competitive NBA team? How do we make it a very seamless experience, you know, for somebody to drive, you know, 50 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes to get into downtown Milwaukee, have ease of parking and then get out, which, you know, could actually compete with what it would take somebody from Lake Forest Illinois to to go downtown to Chicago.
0: Can you talk about how much of a jewel this will be for downtown Milwaukee? This is huge.
3: You know, it's part of downtown Milwaukee's having a little bit of a renaissance in its, uh, and transformation. What we did was really have the opportunity to acquire 30 acres of land on the west side of the Milwaukee River and really create, you know, a neighborhood, you know, in a neighborhood, you know, beyond the arena where people are going to work, live and play. And the arena is the jewel.
1: Peter, you took public money to build this new arena. How do you know it's going to work? And what are the protections for taxpayers?
3: Well the protections are easy the taxpayers are out of the business or out of the arena business you know so they've put it in the, the arena is smack down in the middle of a tax incentive area that that really has already shown the return on investment and growth that it's exploded with other developers who are starting to build around it and uh, you know I talked to a lot of I talked to a lot of business schools I talked to real estate people and I talked to the economists too who, who kind of doubt what the catalyst effect of a sports arena is and I think the biggest difference from all the case studies is a lot of arenas, you know, over the last decade had been built on islands, you know, kind of by themselves. The difference here is the, the arena is certainly the centerpiece of the development, but having thousands of people live in the area, work in the area, eat in the area, have retail events, activating, you know, over 250-plus events outside and inside kind of changes that paradigm of just an arena so that's really part of the strategy is like the 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 success or failure of the arena really has to do with the density and how we populate the entire neighborhood around it
0: we're talking with peter fagan the president of the nba's milwaukee bucks and yes there is the naming rights deal that you're trying to get you're looking from millions of dollars what between seven to ten million per year
3: right and and looking for about a 20 year term and uh going after the categories that you would think you know in technology and insurance and and payment systems and it's such an interesting world now um you know that's becoming Larger in the, in the swatch of international companies, but uh, smaller in a lot of domestic companies that are looking for that international reach. and And the sale is like very interesting because uh, people understand how we started this interview with like the platform of the NBA kind of growing internationally. People understand the value of what those international impressions mean with the strength of being like a domestic NBA brand.
0: We can't call it Scott and Mike Stadium, but can you give us some insight? You can,
3: no, guys, guys, you can't. Don't, don't short yourselves. If you have the, if you, if you have the money, you can call. Michael Barr is so strong
0: internationally
1: already. He's got no interest in this. But you're down to two. Uh, Realistically, you're down to two. Let's pit them against each other right here. Who you got?
3: Two very viable, great, competitive companies in their own sectors that either or would just be great partners.
1: But nobody slaps a name on the arena and that's it anymore. That used, I mean, that's, that used to be the way it worked. They hear, we'll take your money, we'll put your name on the arena. These are integrated relationships now. I'm guessing both want so much more
3: yes so much more i mean you've got to think about the integration you know if it's a tech company what the integration is on technology what it is on broadcast what it is on social and media and digital you've got to think about the physical assets you know what the integration looks like that and then you've got to kind of you know really create a deal that's a little bit flexible because the world changes every 3 to 5 years so how do you how do you figure that out when you pivot on leveraging assets and IP from the team, so it's it, it's it's really interesting, and all the media buyers have become very sophisticated. So I think they always equated impressions to dollars, but now they're really equating where where it is internationally, where it is. Domestically, where it is locally, as well as the value of, of the physical assets over time, and the, and the partnership with the IP of a pro team. So, it, it's fascinating. I wish the process would go a lot faster, but uh, it, it will be a good process, and we'll have a great partner.
1: We are chatting with Peter Fagan, the president of the Milwaukee Bucks. and Peter, you were at Marquee Jet. You led the acquisition by NetJets. Of course, that was controlled by Berkshire Hathaway and, and Warren Buffett. The modus operandi of Warren Buffett is find businesses that work, leave them alone, support them the best I can, and let them do what they do. Is that the same with Mark Lazary and Wes Edens?
3: Well, I think, and, and Jamie Dynan. You know, so I think the three of them. You know, you know, it is the most fascinating. It's the greatest board of directors and ownership in the world because they're both extremely. They're all three of them are extremely different. So you've got Jamie dining at York Capital, who's you know an equity guy. You've got Mark Lazary at Avenue Capital, who's really a distressed guy. And then you've got Wes Edens at Fortress, who's a private equity guy. And and you guys understand what those mindsets are, which are which are really different. Well, be careful so though. They, the private
1: equity guy wants a nice return in seven years and then gets out. But that, I'm guessing in pro sports that might not be the case.
3: Well, I think in pro sports, you look at the, you look at the enterprise value and kind of like how the valuations have gone up. So I don't think Wes is, is, Wes isn't so keen on the five year, on the five year turn uh, on looking at, but all of them, all of them, Run businesses. All of them have been very successful, and all of them are unbelievably helpful when we really scale and scope and, and create an organization and process to do it. So I, I always explain them as like the greatest resources um, that that have that ever been. And they're kind of uh, people ask what they're like, and I say oh, that's pretty easy. It occasionally they're pleased, and uh, they are never satisfied. Um, which is a fun place like if you're if you like that and you like growth and you like the challenge like I love it it's a, it's a great way to be managed.
0: The esports industry is really taking off. Can we talk about your involvement with the 2K League?
3: I think when you talk about where the growth is and kind of how the NBA is on the cutting edge and has the finger on the pulse, really the NBA 2K League, which is a joint venture between the NBA and Take Two Interactive, um, is going to blow things away. I mean, as you can imagine, we have two twenty-something-year-olds, you know, managing this, this product. I look at them every day, and I can't believe it to say, like, you know, in six to eight months, our NBA 2K team will literally have. Tens of millions of views, interactions, engagements, and do this, which is a little bit more than your forty thousand people, you know, watching on local, you know, watching a Bucks game, uh, to do it. So you talk about, you talk about the unbelievable platform of brand extension. You talk about the ability to really target these like twelve to thirty-five year olds that that are tough, you know, market people to really get. To be sticky and engaged in the product, this will be this is going to be incredible. And we opted in immediately with like 16 other NBA teams um, to to start this league, and we've got huge promise in it. I mean, we think we think obviously, um, you know, the the 2K League is is just going to be astronomically successful. You know, with 30 to 40 million NBA 2K players around the world already.
0: I have a 13 year old who beat the living snot out of me playing NBA in, on, online. And, and I can't, I, I have a tough time trying to follow it. But I have to tell him one of the requirements to play is that players must be at least 18 years old.
3: Right. That is literally only the only restriction. So imagine a league that just has the age of 18, but literally on gender uh, for guys like me under six feet. There's no height restriction. There's like, I mean, you've got guys who can actually be MVP, you know, MVP of the leagues, you know, women, men. I mean, this is going to really redefine like engagement with the NBA. And, and by the way, Michael, I mean, it's a great point because, you know, what's happening now is you and I have kids kids you know around the same age it's our it's our understanding like we know this exists and they're engaged and like how does it evolve this whole generation of parents now has to really capture the fact that this is such a real thing i mean like it or not you know kids are engaged over 90 minutes a day you know playing multiple games and like interacting with other competitors around the world
1: We're chatting with Peter Fagan, the president of the Milwaukee Bucks. And, Peter, you're building an arena, so this I want to ask you. Because we're talking about scale, and, for instance, the NBA has a deal now with Twitch where they'll show G League games, but clearly that's just a testing ground for what the NBA might do in the future. If the future of media is scale, and whether all the tech companies are getting involved, we know that, does that diminish the importance of sitting in the building and, and filling that building every night?
3: No, because I don't think there's a difference of the live experience. I think you've got to certainly kind of adjust to what the live experience is. I mean, when you walk into this new arena, it's not by mistake we have an open concourse. You know, an open concourse is is literally how it sounds. It's, 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 uh, It's concourses where thousands of people can actually socialize. They can sit on a drink rail. They can sit at an anchor bar, actually still see, watch, and feel the game. It's like why we've created clubs and platforms like in the sky for for social interaction because it's just kind of where this is going. But nothing, you know, will ever take away from the live experience. And I think basketball has that great advantage of, you know, for two and a half hours, you know, there's there's real live excitement which which you can't recreate on uh on television. And for us, just what you kind of mentioned a little bit before, Scott, the experiential is a big deal. So how do we make everything between the basketball plays so special, so great? I mean, if you ask us as marketers, win or lose, we want people to leave the arena, in any arena or stadium, and say, wow, I I, want to come back here. I had great food. This is a great environment, friendly, clean, nice. I want to come back. And, uh, and the winning or losing, at least in the experiential, doesn't really affect it.
1: I bring this up to every professional sports executive owner who's building a new arena. The best experience in sport is Cameron Indoor Stadium for <laughs> two hours. Those kids, and I say kids, what, you know, 19 to 18 yeah. to 21, <laughs> though I think I've, I'm at the age now where I can say those kids. <laughs> by cracking. Right, they, By the way, they should be right in the wheelhouse of technology. They should be on their, their phones. They should be unable to put that thing down. But if you look at the student section at Cameron during games – they're all jumping up and down. Nobody goes for the phone. Is it possible to recreate that atmosphere in professional sports?
3: I think it's tough. I think it's like you always, you know, now it's adaptability. So by default, we've got to be the most technologically advanced. We've got to have the, the most bandwidth, you know, on Wi-Fi. We've got to understand that there's second screen watching. Your app has to be applicable to, to beacons and being able to shop and eat your food. But I think the way you really direct things that the stage is the court and basketball is the game and how do you get people we had a meeting the other day for for 90 minutes which is a very long meeting for me to really talk about the issue of how do we design how do we alert how do we get people back to their seats at halftime I don't know if you've been watching NBA games or what you see, you know, the better the social atmosphere you make, the better the clubs, the better everything. People sometimes don't get back to their seats till the end of the third quarter you know, to get it done. And we want people to be, like, activated about the live entertainment. So what are ways to, like, get them done? So I think it's our top of mind, is how do we still keep the main focus on basketball, make it exciting, and the product is a game?
1: Well, the Atlanta Hawks think they have a way to solve it. They put the club right next to the court. Any features like it's- that that we're looking forward to? Perhaps you'll experiment
3: with? Well, we'll have features where people at the clubs can actually still watch the games. We'll have features where it's like accessibility is really easy. Like nowhere in this arena, you know, are you walking, you know, halfway around or three-quarters around to kind of get to a destination. It's very open um, to get it. So, yeah, I would say, you know, on ease of use and, uh, and activity, this is purely designed like on that thoughtful, critical path for the fan. Not a question.
0: We're talking with Peter Fagan, the president of the Milwaukee Bucks. I want to talk about you for a second because you grew up right here in Manhattan. Your mom was a top executive for Gray Advertising. And kudos to you because you worked very hard not to be considered an outsider in Milwaukee. You really worked hard with the business and political sectors in Milwaukee. Can you take us through that experience?
3: Yeah, I, I think you don't have to be in Milwaukee for an hour to understand how important, like being a fa- being ingrained in the fabric of the community. I mean, this is although it's a you know a relatively large city with a million people, and and uh, you know even larger if you take the seven counties. I mean, this is a town, you know, and people are very close. You know, it's a very big adjustment to when you when you meet somebody. There's a pretty good chance, like you'll see them at breakfast at some point in the next two weeks. Um, To get it to just tell you what that's like. So, and this is about setting expectations. This is about building equity. And, you know, when we sat down and talked, you know, with my owners, we just said, this is all literally hand to hand combat. So we spent, you know, the last three years building relationships, really going out. It is all personalized. People people here and i and i say it as a positive you know are very provincial you know like if you weren't if you haven't been in the city of milwaukee for 20 years like you're not from milwaukee you know if you're from oshkosh you you might be an outsider to to milwaukee which i find always funny to get it so for us it was really to have a plan on the grassroots and community side and not only do it but blow it out of the park, make it sustainable, and really bring it into the community. And our community actions across the state are really also the strategy to how we build that fandom um, around Wisconsin.
1: Well, Peter, you called Milwaukee segregated a couple of years ago. and I mean, you walked it back a little bit, but if it is, it is. Do you see the team as a unifying factor?
3: Without a question. I mean, I think when you look at NBA teams and take the Milwaukee Bucks example, it is physically one of the only melting pots like in the state. Like, you come to a Bucks game... It is the, the aggregation of, of, of such a mix of, of race, of gender, of age. Um, it really is kind of a vibrant, diverse place physically. It literally is. And I think when you talk about NBA teams, and, and Adam Silver has talked about this, and David Stern did before, we can really be a catalyst um, you know, for change in the communities, because you have so many kids who really aspire you know, and look up to and want to be attached to the NBA? How do you, in a very smart, strategic way, take that likability and that passion and really affect change?
0: Peter Fagan, the president of the Milwaukee Bucks, you are so kind to talk with us. Thank you, sir.
3: Oh, guys, a pleasure. Anytime.
0: Takeaways. Let's start with a man who was born in New York City. His mom was a top executive in New York City. He went to Milwaukee and integrated himself in the community, in the business world, and he has really taken off. And this brand new arena, I am truly impressed with this gentleman.
1: It's a real estate play in Milwaukee. It's a catalyst for everything for the franchise from the financial side of things. But I'm most impressed with the fact that you can pronounce so easily Greek Freak's last name. Do it for me one more time. Ante de Kumpo! Ante de Kumpo. Very, very good. I could not do that before (laughs) this interview, so you impressed me there. But it really shows, Michael, when you're putting a roster together, all things being equal, if you can have a player from outside the U.S., That could be the difference maker because it gives you so many more marketing opportunities. The Bucks' numbers, if you look at their social, if you look at their digital, outside the U.S., more than half of it outside the U.S., and it's because of one player. That will drive international interest. It will drive revenue. It's exactly the game plan the NBA has set forth.
2: My goal is if you don't want to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since i a kid. It
1: feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike.
0: My... We
2: have a chance to go for three in a row. Good
0: numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. You're going to figure this one out. No, I won't. Yes, you will. 216,000.
1: 16th. I, I I told you before I was going to use the word flummox. Well, guess
0: what? <laughs> Here, I, I really have no idea. That but, is the amount in dollars Lou Gehrig's 1931 contract with the New York Yankees sold for at an auction. The 1931 contract was part of a Yankees legend offering by Heritage Auctions. By the way, Derek Jeter, he was also part of this. How... His 1992 report, scouting report, on what he was doing at that time when he played high school in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And according to the scout, he wrote that Jeter, quote, a Yankee, a five-tool player, will be a ML start plus five.
1: I remember the scouting report when it says five-tool player nowadays, it, it would say he has warp of this and this percentage of that. Could you imagine the scouting report for Derek Jeter now? It would be all analytics. And by the way, a, you know a wonderful leader as well. But it would be all analytics.
0: And I should add that that scouting report went for $102,000.
1: That's some pretty good scouting report. I'm telling you, that's, that's your money, man.
0: Yeah, right. I wish. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week, at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us, and please
1: tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the world of sports business.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.